we are in the third week, as I said, of a series called Surface Tension, where we're taking a look primarily at being healthy emotionally and seeing how our emotions are connected to our spirituality, that God, in fact, has created our emotions. Emotions are not bad. They are not evil. In fact, they're indicators, not enemies. We are created in the image of God, and God is an emotional being. All throughout Scripture, we see emotions being expressed. We saw Jesus on this earth expressing emotions. And we need to be healthy emotionally. The the graphic for this series is an iceberg. 90% of an iceberg is beneath the surface, while only 10% is above. 10% is what we often focus on. We all have a 10% in our life. In fact, each of you here this morning has a 10% church face or public face, right? You are revealing 10% to people. They ask you a question, and you respond. And that's normal. But I'm not really interested in the 10%. I'm interested in the 90, because the 90 is who we really are. It is the 90% beneath the surface that impacts our behavior and our discussions and how we respond to people. And that's the area that I believe God really wants to work on and change in us. And that's what I wanted to focus on. So far, we've talked about one thing. So there are five pieces or five aspects of being a human being. If you take a pie chart, divide it into five, you get emotional, spiritual, physical, intellectual, and social. We often spend a lot of time in four areas, social, physical, spiritual, and intellectual, and we negate or ignore the emotional part of who we are, hoping that it gets better, or maybe believing that it can't get better, so what's the use in dealing with it? When, in fact, our emotions are a very big piece of who we are. Again, we're created in the image of God. There are no bad emotions. There are only bad decisions as it relates to our emotions. There are no gender-specific emotions. We are created in the image of God. We have them. God wants to redeem them. He wants to make them whole. And he wants us to be mature across every aspect of that. We've got a statement that we're looking at that just galvanizes this whole series, and it's this, that it is impossible to be spiritually mature uh, while remaining emotionally immature. It is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. You can go to all the Bible studies you want, all the sermons you want, color your Bible like it's a coloring book, and that still doesn't make you mature, right? You have to allow God to change you from the inside out, and impact every part of your life. This is a series really about freedom and change. just requires that we be honest with ourselves, that we want to change, and we remove the masks and the barriers. Last week we talked about we have to know ourselves so that we can know God. That knowing how He wired us and how He created us is a pathway to knowing Him. And we talked about three temptations that keep us from really knowing who we are. Three temptations that tempt us to find our identity in them, but they're not true. Jesus was tempted with these, and they're this, performance. We're tempted to say, I am what I do. I am what I do. Secondly is possessions. I am what I have. I am what I have. And thirdly is popularity. I am what others think. I don't know about you. I struggle with all of those. But we are not what others think. We're not what we have, and we are not what we do. God told Jesus when he baptized him before any ministry, any miracle, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In the same way, we're sons and daughters of God before we've ever done anything apart from our performance in whom he's well pleased. Everything we do, we do from a foundation of being accepted and beloved 
by the fact that he created us. God does not place value on us on the basis of what we do, what we have, and who we know. Any of that. So this week, I want to take it a step further. You'll kind of notice that each week we're going to get deeper on the iceberg. So if you're waiting for it to get more comfortable, it just doesn't. It doesn't. It just gets better. This week we're talking about you have to go back in order to go forward. That you can no longer ignore your past. You can no longer ignore what was done, what you did, what someone said. That ignoring and acting like it didn't happen is not a pathway to freedom. Nor can you believe the lie that says, if I can ignore it, it doesn't have an effect on my behavior. Lie. Something that happened 20 years, in an instant, based on what someone says or does, comes right back to the surface in the form of an emotion, in the form of a response, and something very visceral in us. This is all predicated on the fact that I believe God wants to take us back and heal and redeem moments and words and situations in our lives so that we can be a more complete and whole person. But we have to let him do that. We have to let him take us back so that we can really move forward and be free. For some of us in here, that involves some forgiveness. For some, it just involves being honest and open about what happened to us. I'm not even saying with other people yet. I'm just saying with yourself. Because really, the present is just a window into the past. How you're responding currently, how you feel today, can be a window into your past. The past could be yesterday. The past could be a year ago. The past could be 20 years ago. It's a window into the past. And so what I want to do is see how we really go back so that we can go forward. I want to look at just some quotes about true spirituality here for a moment that can help us see that what we're really talking about, that true spirituality is about the reality that we face. Here's the first one. Emotionally healthy spirituality is about reality, not denial or illusion. Sometimes people say religion Spirituality is just an excuse to not deal with what's going on. It's basically just a way to medicate. And no, 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 it's not a way to medicate. It's a way to heal, make sense of, and move forward. Secondly, this, true spirituality frees us to live joyfully in the present. It requires, however, going back in order to go forward. This takes us to the very heart of spirituality and discipleship in the family of God, breaking free from the destructive, sinful patterns of our past, to live the life of love that God intends. There's something unique that happens when we become a Christ follower. We become part of the family of God. Scripture is very clear on that. We become part of the family of God. We read his word. We see how God's family should function. And we realize my family does not function the way that God's family does. Right? And I want to, but it's, it's vastly different. The reason being is, is that we were all born into a family. Right? Some good. Some bad, some functional, some very dysfunctional, some semi-functional. Regardless of your family, you learned a set of blueprints. You were given a set of blueprints for how to live, how to engage in conversation, how to deal with issues, how to manage money, how to be married, how to do a lot of things. Those blueprints are very powerful in your life because whether they were good, bad, functional, dysfunctional, they taught you how to live. And that doesn't go away in a moment. That doesn't go away in a year. That doesn't go away when you get in a relationship, when you move into marriage. Really, those things bring them to the surface. So you may have been a Christian. You may be, I've been following Jesus for 30 years, but I still am acting out the blueprints are architecting my life around what I was taught when I was five. Very strong. 
That's why God says that we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are learning how to be different. Not only that, we are being empowered to be different. So what some of us are going to have to do is take a look at how we were raised and be honest and say, that was good, not so much, functional, majorly dysfunctional, and I want to be different. How many of you have said, I want to be different than how I grew up? Yeah, yeah. even if you had great parents, I had great parents, but there are still some things I would look at and say, maybe I want to do that differently. And I think my parents would say, yes, do that differently. Right? So it's not wrong. We're not being critical. We're just being honest. And sometimes when you're honest, not sometimes, every time when you're honest, it brings things to light that you don't want to bring to light, whether for fear of how it makes you feel or how someone else feels. So what I want to do today, I want to look at a story in Scripture, a character who had to do this very thing, who had to go back, address his family so that he could go forward. I'm going to share with you three things on how we can go back so that we can go forward, because I know none of us in here really want to go back, but we have to. There's no, there's no discussion really about that. It's something we must do. It's something God wants to do. So I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to take a look at Joseph today. Now, Joseph, before we read this passage of Scripture, Joseph has a very interesting family dynamic, okay? Joseph is in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph's father is Jacob. Now, Jacob comes from a very interesting family line. His father was Isaac. Isaac played favorites with his sons. Isaac's favorite son was Jacob. His wife, Rebecca, her favorite son, or Isaac's favorite son was Esau. Rebecca's favorite son was Jacob. And they pulled some trickery at the beginning, right, to get Jacob to have Esau's birthright. And so, you know, any situation where parents have favorites and they're different and the kids are really controlling the environment is not healthy, but maybe normal for some of us. That's what Jacob comes from. He's a liar and he's a deceiver. In fact, his name means that. He lied to his father to steal something from his brother. So then Jacob, he goes to work for his uncle Laban, and he falls in love with Rachel, Laban's daughter. The Bible says Rachel's beautiful. Laban says, if you work for me for seven years, I'll give you, I'll give you Rachel. I mean, they just didn't go up and hook up on Snapchat or something and go on a date back, and then they had arranged marriages. So crazy story. Wedding happens. In that culture, you got a veil over your face the whole time. Jacob's like, I can't wait for the next morning to see Rachel. They consummate the marriage. He wakes up the next morning. It ain't Rachel. It's Leah. It's another woman. Like, legitimately, read it in Scripture. It's good stuff. Like, it's a good movie. He says, whoa! This is Leah. Bible says that Leah had a nice smile, maybe. Kind of, the Bible treats Leah like, God, like bless her heart, you know. So he goes to Laban. He says, yo, what about Rachel? Yeah, I want you to work for me another seven years, then you can have Rachel. So he does. And he marries Rachel. He loves Rachel. Oh, he loves Rachel. She, he's, he's been in love with her for a long time. Leah's just, she came along with the deal. So then you have this dynamic. These sisters married the same dude. Okay? Leah's jealous of Rachel because Rachel's beautiful, and Rachel is the one whom Jacob loved. Rachel gets jealous of Leah because Leah's having kids and she can't have kids. Leah thinks, if I just have babies, he'll love me. Boys. She's giving them boys. And you can see the way she names her kids. It's this whole discussion she's having with God. It's really amazing. Rachel's having a hard time having kids. Then Joseph is born. Joseph is the firstborn of Jacob and Rachel. He's the youngest when he's born, but he's one of the youngest kids, but he's the firstborn of Jacob and Rachel. 
Jacob makes the same mistake his father does. Jacob has a favorite. His favorite is Joseph. Joseph doesn't have to go out and work very hard like the other brothers do. He gets to stay in the house. He actually becomes a tattletale. He reports back to his father and all the stupid stuff his brothers are doing. So they grow to dislike Jacob, to Joseph. Joseph also, you know, because he's beloved by his father, his father gives him this beautiful robe. He ain't done nothing. He's just his favorite. Beautiful robe. And he has these dreams. God speaks to Joseph. Joseph has this dream where he interprets that one day he's going to rule over his brothers. And so Joseph does what a lot of us would do. He goes and tells his brothers, hey, guys, one day you're all going to bow down to me. I'm going to rule over you. They already don't like him. How their family decides to deal with conflict is this. They take Joseph because they don't like him. They hate him, really. They're, they, they're just bitter towards him. They throw him in a pit, fake his death, take that beautiful robe, cover it in blood, sell him into slavery, and take the robe home and tell their father, hey, a wolf ate your son. But they didn't care. It wasn't his real brother. It was only his half, their half-brother. Joseph sold into slavery by the Ishmaelites, gets taken to Egypt, becomes a servant in a man's house. He ends up rising through the ranks, running the house, but this guy's wife, Potiphar's wife, she likes Joseph. Joseph's apparently a good-looking man. He, she's making sexual advances towards Joseph. Joseph is being a good guy, saying, no, I can't sleep with you. You're not, you know, you're Potiphar's wife. She grabs his robe. He runs away. She pulls his robe off, and he takes off streaking naked through the property. She's offended because obviously he didn't give in to her advances. She tells Potiphar, Joseph tried to, molest, he tried to rape me. He tried to force himself on me. Potiphar is so mad that he throws Joseph in prison. Joseph goes to prison. Joseph in prison makes some friends, interprets some dreams, hoping to get before the Pharaoh. I think he's in prison for like seven years. Eventually, Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, which is the most powerful empire of the day because of a dream that he was able to interpret. But this has been a 20-year process, a 20-year process of him being neglected and sold into slavery by his own brothers. The story we're going to read is the encounter that he has with his brothers. There's a famine in the land, right? His brothers have come because there's no food where they're at. They come to Egypt looking for help. They don't know that Joseph's there. Joseph is dead for all they know. And Joseph encounters 20 years of pain, of bitterness, of anger and resentment, and people who sold him into his family that sold him into slavery. I want to take a look at, at how he responded to that. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, this is Jacob, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. When Joseph heard this, he wept as they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, this is Joseph speaking, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about all that many people should have been kept alive, could have, should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There had been a little bit more of an interaction between Joseph and his brothers. This is the, kind of the culmination of his conversation with them. But Joseph is in the opportunity. Once you understand this, he has power. He has leverage. They don't. They had the power. They had the leverage. They had the influence, and they sold him into slavery. Now here's Joseph with the best opportunity he's ever been given to exact revenge on his brothers and his entire family. And what he does instead is he decides to forgive them. 
and he decides to provide for them and he brings the whole family to Egypt, gives them a place to live. The Pharaoh actually, the king actually says, go for it, Joseph. And he provides for them and their little ones. In the face of all of this, my question is, how is Joseph able to do that? Sold into slavery. I think the story is, it's relatable on many levels because if we're honest with ourselves, we can look back and say there was someone or something in our lives or maybe us that did something to us that put us in bondage in some way. We were sold into some form of slavery because of someone's words or their actions against us. Or maybe we sold ourselves into slavery because of something that we did. And how is it that we can be free? How is it we can break free from that and live in the freedom that God has promised? I think we see three things from Joseph's life that can help us. And the first one is this, is that Joseph faced up to the past. He was honest about what happened, and he did not minimize or rationalize the past. If you read, I mean, his story starts in Genesis 30 somewhere. You read through that. You can see that he had to work some stuff out. He was honest about his past. He said, you sold me into slavery. This is what you did to me. So many times what we do is instead of facing up to our past, we minimize it. We rationalize it. We, we say, it really wasn't that big of a deal. What was done to me, what was said, what I did, it just just happened. It's normal, right? No, it's not normal. It's a result of sin in the world. It's not normal, but it happened. I think the thing about forgiveness and and moving forward is forgiveness never looks at something and says, that was okay. Forgiveness never makes a concession. Honesty never makes a concession and says, what happened to you really wasn't that bad, it was okay. No, it looks at it and says, that was horrible, that was bad, but in order for me to move on, I have to forgive if I want to be free, if I don't want to be a prisoner, if I don't want to be a slave anymore. My encouragement to us this morning is stop minimizing your past. Stop rationalizing it away and be honest, whether how, in, you, how insignificant you see it now or how prominent it is in your life. Don't minimize it. Be honest about it. Face up to it and begin to work through it and move forward in it. A question could be as well, how do I really start facing up to my past? You just want me to sit around and think about all the stuff that happened to me? Not really, because that can get depressing. Okay? We talked about a blueprint for our, our, in our families, how it was given to us. There are things that we learned, and I would call like the, the unwritten rules of our family, and we all have them, right? You learned the, the, the Ten Commandments of your family around certain issues, anger, money, success, conflict, sex, right? You learned it whether you were conscious of it or not how you are to deal with those things. There were rules given to you that you observed. You observed. Part of what we need to do is we need to observe the rules of our family, the unwritten rules of our family. Some of you can say, well, what does it matter? That was 50 years ago. It matters because it's still having an impact on you today. It's still having an impact on you today. I want to walk through just five things, okay? Here's some unwritten rules and and lies that we believe. Let's look about uh, money. Talk about an unwritten rule about how we look at money. That money is the best source of security. That's what we've been taught. And money is a source of security, but it's not the best. The truth that we have to come to is, no, Jesus is our refuge and our strength. Jesus, God, he's our sense of security. Money is a tool. Some of us live for money. Our identity is found in money. How much money we can make. How much stuff that we have. That's what identifies us. That's what makes us feel successful and secure. And it's fleeting because you never have enough. How many of you have ever had enough money? And if you raise your hand, you're lying. Because you thought, I've got this. How much more could I get? 
right? No, money, it's not a source of security. What did you learn about money? Success. Oh, success brings self-worth. Well, what's your definition of success? The truth is our self-worth comes from the fact that we were created in the image of God. That's what our self-worth comes from. I was created in the image of God. I'm a son or a daughter of God apart from my performance. I was created with intentionality. I'm not the product of time plus chance plus matter in a meaningless, unguided universe. No, no, no. There's a creator, and I'm created in his image. And as Spawn read today in Psalm 139, when I was in the depths of the earth and in my mother's womb, he had a plan and a purpose for me. That's where my self-worth is found. Conflict. Here's one. Here's a lie we learned. Avoid it at all costs. Anybody learn that? Somebody's like, no, I didn't learn that. I learned run headlong into conflict at all costs. In the church, sometimes we say, if you're, if you're a good Christian, you don't have conflict. Eh, wrong answer. Lie. 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 Conflict is a part of life. Jesus engaged in conflict. He engaged in conflict. What we need to learn is that conflict, avoiding it is not healthy. We should resolve it in a loving, healthy way. If you want to learn how to do conflict well, start with Matthew chapter 18. You can, you can engage in conflict and not scream and throw stuff and make the environment very tense. It's possible. It's possible. Grief and loss. How did you learn how that? A lot of us learned that sadness is a sign of weakness. You can't grieve. We don't grieve in our culture, right? Someone dies on Monday, funerals on Tuesday, and we go back to work. We schedule funerals around people's work schedules so people can come. That's just our culture. We don't really grieve. It's get them in, get them in the grave, move on. And I get it. But learning that we have to see that grief in God's family, we embrace it. It, it, Grief is what helps us be compassionate. Right? We learn that grief and suffering and loss are part of life and God doesn't remove them, but God is present in them and he helps us through them. In a couple weeks, we're going to talk about how to do that, how to grow through grief and loss. It's going to be really exciting. Grief and loss. Here, last one, expressing anger. Anger is dangerous and bad. Some of us fear expressing anger. Some of us say, I'm, I'm like numero uno champion in expressing anger. That's the only thing I feel and express well. But in God's family, we express anger in an appropriate way. It's part of the growth process. It's possible to express anger and not scream and throw stuff. Anger is not a bad emotion. Jesus was angry and didn't sin. Anger is from the Lord. I was, I, growing up, I thought anger was from the devil. Remember, there are no bad emotions. There are bad decisions on the basis of our emotions. So, on the back of this handy-dandy sheet we've been giving you, some of you may be sitting on it, pull it out on the back. What I want you to do this week is, I want you to work through your family's Ten Commandments. We listed ten things. I just covered five as an example Work through some of those. Money, conflict, sex, family, relationships, feelings and emotions, attitudes toward different cultures. That's a big one today. What were you taught? Write out what you were taught and then try to write out what maybe is not true about that. You say, why would I do this? Because I think it'll give you some insight and maybe some revelation to what's going on now. Why you respond in situations the way you do. Why when there's, there's a, an argument between you and your spouse, you go to a place, or you say things that you don't mean, that you try to hurt rather than help. Why is that? Those are important things, because you learn something along the way. And I just want you to know, God doesn't just take care of it. He's more like a crock pot than he is a fast food drive through 
You don't come to church, order it up, he gives it to you, and you're good. No, no, no. It's a process and it's a journey. This is not an event. I'm afraid what one of the, 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 the things we've done wrong in kind of the Pentecostal charismatic environment is said an altar can fix everything. No, no, no. God can fix everything. And there's times where he takes it away and we're like, hallelujah. But there's more often than not, it's a journey. I don't know about you, but when you put something in the crock pot, it's tender, it's juicy, it's more flavorful. Sometimes if you put it in the oven or you grill it, it tastes like leather. God knows that sometimes some things take a little more time because he's preparing something in you. He's doing something in you. I wish he could just be like, bam. And sometimes he does. Majority of the time I'm finding, he doesn't. He leads us through a journey. So we face up to the past. So take this, do it. You don't have to share it with anybody. It'll be a good exercise for you. Say, what if I don't do it? I don't care. It's your loss. You know, whatever. It's just for you. These are tools for you. Either way, you don't have to report back to me at all. I just want to give you something practical each week that you can do. This is just a good segue into facing up to your past. Second thing that Joseph was able to do was discern the good. He could discern the good of what happened. He could look at his situation, the 20 years of being sold into slavery, being accused of sexual abuse, being in prison, and now here, he could look at it and say to his brothers, hey, I know you're, you're sad, but am I not where God wants me to be? Have I not been put in a position to keep people alive in a famine? Isn't that crazy? Joseph had a sense of the bigness of God. And he could say, look, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. God took you faking my death and selling me into slavery and put me in a position to save a lot of people's lives, not only that, to save yours. I'm amazed at people that can do that. People that have gone through something so difficult, so horrible, and can say, but God. Some of you know, I, I traveled around the, the country doing conferences with Joyce Meyer and her story. She was raped by her father repeatedly. I've heard her say that she would go through it all over again because of the testimony and the ministry that God has given her and how it has helped people. I can't fathom that. But what I understand is this, is whatever was done to you, whatever you did to yourself, God wants to take that and make it a highlight in your life to help other people. God wants to redeem it. God wants to put his hands on it and heal it and use it. But we have to let him do that. We have to have the perspective that God didn't cause it. Did he allow it? Yes, he did. I'll concede that fact. He allowed it. Why would God allow things? Because he's given us the beautiful gift of free will. We, we live in a, in, a, in a world, a universe where love is possible. Love does not exist where there is no choice. If I love you because I'm programmed to love you, that's not love. I'm a robot. God does not violate that gift as much as I wish he would at times. My question would be, where would you draw the line? Where would you draw the line of God intervening? A loving God would intervene. And I say, a loving God gave us the capacity and the ability to love and to choose. And he does not violate that free will. He respects and he honors it and he honors the choice because he honors the gift of love and free will. So when you can step back and you can say someone made a choice, they abused their free will. They abused their position of power. They abused their influence. 
But God has never or will never do that, and he will redeem that, and you can discern the good. Because here's the reality. You can sit and complain and live in, and live in regret and, and talk about what should have been and could have been all the, all the time. And, and you may be justified in doing that, but I'm telling you what, you're never going to move forward. You're going to sing an old song. I have compassion for you and I care for you, but I want you to move forward. I want you to, to be free. And you have to be able to discern the good to say, this is what happened, but God. But God. The amazing thing about Joseph is this, how he faced up to the past and discerned the good. The Bible says that he wept when they talked. He wept. It says that he wept bitterly. The Egyptians around him heard him weeping. Now, I, I believe this was a guttural weep. Have you ever heard anybody weep or mourn the loss of someone or pain? I think for Joseph, this was almost uncontrollable. He had to run away. He, he, 20 years of pain and brokenness and neglect and rejection, staring his brothers in the face, knowing what he's going to do. He wept uncontrollably. He let it out, the pain that came from him. So again, he didn't, he didn't rationalize it. He didn't push it away. He chose to deal with it. And thirdly, the way that he was able to do this, the third thing was, is I believe he made a decision to partner with God. He made a decision to partner with God. I talked about free will, right? God does not force himself on you. God does not just come in and fix stuff. God, that's why he's given us the gift of salvation, the gift of the gospel, and we have the ability to receive it, to respond to it. We do not have a religion that propagates violence by our truth by violence or force. We don't force the truth on people. We don't subjugate them and say, believe or you die. No, no, no. We say, here's the opportunity for life. You can accept it if you want. That's what God does. Hey, this is what I've done. I'm here. Everything is done. All you have to do is accept it. It's a gift. Healing is a gift. Freedom is a gift. The question is not, does God want to or can he? The question is, are we willing to partner with him to receive it? That's the question. That's what Joseph told his brothers. Look, you meant it for harm. I am where God has called me to be. And what I think is so beautiful, he said, do not fear. Think about how the roles have been reversed. Joseph was in a pit 20 years ago, and his brothers are staring down at him. How afraid was that young man? How afraid? Now he has the opportunity. He can sense the fear in his brothers. They are bowing down before him. That dream he had, Joseph was right. He can sense the fear, but yet he has the compassion and the bigness, the sense of God's bigness and, and, and the redemption in his life to say, do not be afraid. I will, I forgive you, and I'm not only going to provide for you, I'm going to provide for your little ones as well. I will not hold against your children what you have done to me. That's powerful. That's powerful. Joseph, what he did in that moment is, he flipped the script on his life. He chose not to live according to his family's blueprint. All the way back to Jacob, or to Isaac. Isaac had a favorite. Rebecca had a favorite. Jacob lied to get what he wanted. Jacob was lied to by Laban. He was taken advantage of. Fast forward to Joseph. 
Joseph is lied to by his brothers. They tricked him going out there. They, they were going to do something wonderful for him, and they sold him into slavery. In the moment, what you see Joseph doing is, is he is changing the pattern of his family. He is destroying a generational curse or pattern in his family. What he's saying is, we will live different from this point forward. My sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, those were his two boys, I will not treat them the way that I was treated. I will not have a favorite. I will not do the things that were done to me and to my father and to my family. I will change the course and the direction of my family. By going back so that we can go forward, you have the opportunity in here this morning to change the course and the direction of your family. I don't care if you're 75 years old. You can change it. Some of you say, well, I messed up with my kids royally. But do you have grandkids? Someone told me that's just an opportunity for a redo. All the mistakes you made with your kids, you don't have to treat your grandkids in the same way. You have that opportunity by not minimizing and rationalizing your past, by facing up to it, by discerning the good of it and saying, today I draw a line in the sand and this will not continue. That's what you have the opportunity to do. But the more you ignore it, the more you push it off to the side, what you're doing is, is you're passing the buck to the next generation. You're pushing the ball down the field. And I want to say, there is nothing courageous about that. Be the change that you want to see in your family. It's hard work. It's difficult. Someone's got to do it. Someone has to do it. And you have the opportunity to. And that's what we see Joseph doing here, is saying, my family will be different. What Joseph, I think what he really was able to do that day is to say, I'm no longer a slave. See, he wasn't a slave to the Ishmaelites or the Egyptians. He wasn't just in prison in Egypt he was in prison inside of his heart and his mind with his family. The shackles for Joseph fell off that day when he could look at his brothers and say, I could condemn you, I could kill you, I could starve you to death, I could throw you out of here, but I choose to forgive you and love you and provide for you. Isn't Joseph just a picture of Jesus? Didn't Jesus become a, a slave to sin and our punishment? Wasn't he rejected by all of us? And when he had the power to exact revenge, he decided to hang on a cross and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The God that we serve enters into suffering, enters into brokenness, and he takes us back so that he can take us forward. That's what he does. A big part of partnering with God is saying, God, I trust that you're safe. I trust that you're good. I trust that you won't take this broken, vulnerable part of who I am and plaster it all over social media. You won't, you won't make a fool of me. You won't hang me out to dry. You will treat it with care and tenderness and you will heal and bring me through. But you have to want to do that. You have to allow God to take that piece of who you are. One of the things that I wanted to do this morning was end on a, a contemplative note like we've been doing, but I wanted to, to build it around communion. We do communion the fourth Sunday of every month. And I was thinking about how could we tie this in of going back so that we can go forward. And I remember this story in the book of Luke. It's called The Road to Emmaus. What happens in this story is there's these two guys that are walking back from this celebration they've been to. They were there for Passover and they, they believed that Jesus was who he said he was, but he was crucified and they didn't believe that he was resurrected. And they, they were so over, overwhelmed. And they, they were having this conversation about what could have been, what should have been, what might have been. And while they're having this conversation, this guy comes up behind them 
And he's listening to the conversation. They don't know it, but it's Jesus. Jesus has disguised himself. And he starts listening to the conversation. Man, he, 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 he was the Messiah. He, we thought he could have brought healing, all these things. And he, Jesus makes his way into the conversation. And the Bible says, it says he takes them back to the beginning. He goes all the way to the beginning of scripture. And he walks them through on this long walk. This is who I am. This is where I was at in history. This is a revelation of the Messiah. I was here. I was here. I was here. And they can't see him. They're so amazed by the conversation. They, when they get home, they walk with him. He, they invite him in for dinner. And they sit down for dinner. And this is a picture of communion. This is Jesus sitting at the head of the table. They still don't recognize him. Jesus takes the bread. He sits at the head position of the table. He was a guest, not the head, but head part of the table. And he breaks the bread symbolizing his broken body for them. The moment the bread is broken, their eyes are open and they see Jesus. And then Jesus pulls a superhero move and he disappears. He disappears. And they look at each other and they say, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked? The beautiful thing about that story is this, is that it's in communion that we have the opportunity for Jesus to take us back, not only in his story, but in our story. And he can point out along the way, I was there, I was there, I was there, I was there. He, he, he's not absent in our suffering. He's present in our suffering. He's not absent when we sin or when we make the mistake. He, he's present. The problem is that we can't see him. We can't see him. We can't discern. Our, our hearts may burn, but we, we can't discern. It, it, it's in a moment where the Holy Spirit allows us to see. We see him. We see that he's been there all along, all along. 